Thank you, Jeremy, and thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here this morning. We're going to be looking this morning at one of the Psalms, at Psalm number 16. I think the Psalms, for, for many believers, the Psalms are their favourite part of the Bible. Christians love the Psalms, and I think most Christian has most Christians have at least one psalm, one or two maybe, that they love in a special way. They're their favourite psalms. The, those psalms seem to speak to them in a special way, seem to capture something, express exactly our own internal emotions, our own dealings with God. The psalms do help us to come before God as we should and there's so much breadth in the Psalter, isn't there? The whole book of Psalms just runs across the whole range of human emotions. They express so well our own hopes, our fears, our joys, our disappointments, our victories, our struggles. There, there's a psalm for every human emotion, every way in which we relate to God. As I say, we'll look this morning at Psalm 16 which, as we read it, we'll see it's, it's a happy psalm. It comes out of a crisis in David's life. David, in the first verse, is crying out to God. He, he is in distress. Preserve me, O God. In you I put my trust, he says. Protect me. I'm, I'm seeking refuge in you. He's in some kind of trouble. But the whole that's not the tone of the whole psalm. He starts to think about who his God is, about what his God has done for him. And he becomes glad. And the whole psalm, as we read it, we'll see it's, it's contented in tone. David ends up thinking, I'm just so happy to have God as my God. I think we would agree with him, I hope, if we have God as our God. This is a happy thing. He's a good God. We'll, we'll read together the psalm David wrote on this theme. Let's hear the word of God. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, You are my God. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in shale, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So reads the word of God. When we read the Psalms, and when we read a Psalm like this one, 
it is natural for us to see ourselves in them. It's natural for us to look for our own experience and to find a reflection of our experience in the Psalms. When, when we read a psalm about suffering, we think about the times we've suffered. When we read David crying out to God for help, we, we think of the times we've cried out for help. And, and maybe that affects the way we do cry out. We pattern our own cries after David's. When, when we read a psalm about joy, we learn how to rejoice. We learn what we should be rejoicing about. And that's, that's not wrong. That's obviously one of the things the Psalter's there for. But with the Psalms of David, and especially with the ones David wrote, we need to be careful doing that, I think. We, at, at the very least, we need to be conscious that those Psalms are not just Psalms written by a standard, normal, everyday believer. Because, because they're not. They're written by David. They're written by God's anointed king. But before they are, about, they are about us, but before they are about us and our relationship with God, they're about David and his relationship with God. And that was a particular relationship and a special relationship. King David was the king anointed by God to lead his people, to save his people, to bring God's mercy, God's blessing to his people. The Psalms are meant to teach us about our own souls, our own hearts, our own minds and our own dealings with God. But before that, they're meant to show us the king. David himself is a prefiguring of the great king, the last one of his line, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. David is a, a little scale model of the one who will come. And the Psalms of David, they don't just show us David and they don't just show us ourselves. They show us the Lord Jesus. When we read this psalm, we can see something of the experience of Jesus himself. David's Psalms, we need to read them through bifocals, if you like, if you can put it that way. We, there, are, there are two lenses and we need to read the psalm through both of them. We can look through the bottom end of the bifocals and we can see David himself. We can think about his situation, what he meant when he wrote the psalm. But then we need to look through the other part of the bifocals and we need to see the Lord Jesus. We need to learn about his joys, his sorrows. And then but maybe we actually need trifocals or varifocals or something because as the last step, we want to think about how the psalms apply to ourselves. So I think this morning we'll look at Psalm 16. We'll, we'll go through looking at David and looking at the Lord Jesus and looking at ourselves. As we said, this is a happy psalm. David is meditating on all the reasons he has to be glad that God is his God. We'll, we'll pick out just five of those. You could pick out 500, but that might take a bit too long. So we'll go for five. Five is enough to think about. David first says then, his God is the source of every other good thing he has. God is the source of every good thing. He says in verse 2, my goodness is nothing apart from you. Literally, my good is nothing apart from you. I, I have no good apart from you. And he's reminding himself, his God is good. Everything good he has comes from God. Everything good he has known 
is a gift from the good God. And David is conscious of that. He's aware of it from the little things, the thousand little mercies that we experience every day. They're gifts from God. A comfy pair of shoes, that's God's goodness. A fresh breeze on a hot day. A nice warm cup of cocoa when you come in from the cold. Those are gifts. That's God's goodness. And bigger things, faithful friends, loyal, for David, loyal followers. Those things are gifts from God to him. For David himself, greater things still. The position God has given him. The promises God has made to him. And the the greatest thing of all, God himself. Everything good flows from above, flows from God. You'll, You'll see through the psalm, David will often call God by a particular name, which is usually in our English versions translated in block capitals, the Lord, with every letter as a capital. When, when we see that word in our English Bibles, we know that the Hebrew is Yahweh behind it. It's the name for God. At the, at the burning bush on Mount Sinai, we remember in Exodus 3, Moses spoke to God and he asked God, well, what, what shall I call you? You're sending me back to the people to lead them out of slavery. What name should I give the people? They'll, they'll ask me, who sent me? And God says, tell them that I am has sent you. I am who I am, Yahweh. And that becomes a name that the Israelites use for God very often. But what God is saying about himself is that he simply is. He is the one self-existent being, the ground of everything else. Everything else is dependent on him. It exists only because he made it. He is the one being who just is the one being who always has been and always will be, and the source of everything else. And that means that he can be trusted. It means he is faithful. Everything else is contingent. Everything else is dependent. If I, if, if I say to you, oh, I'll see you tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, then we both know there are a thousand and one things that might happen to, to mean I can't keep that promise. Maybe my car will break down. Maybe I'll become ill in the middle of the night. There are things I just don't know and can't control. If I make a promise, it's understood that I might not be keeping that promise because maybe I can't. If God makes a promise, there's nothing that can stop him keeping it. Everything depends on him. He gives rise to all the circumstances. David knows that and he he says here, I have nothing good. There is no good apart from you. And he means it. Nothing good would come to him if God weren't there. And God is the greatest thing, the greatest good. He might be in distress, David. He might be feeling he needs to seek refuge. But he can still be grateful for the good things he has. And he knows it's God for whom whom he must thank for everything good. And we can look then through our bifocals. We can look beyond David. And we can see the Lord Jesus. He could sing this psalm. He had this kind of trust that God is good. Even in Jesus' moments of greatest distress, when he was in anguish, when he was tempted to doubt his father's goodness, he never lost that kind of trust. You, You think of the night just before he was arrested, the night he was betrayed, 
He's praying in the garden and he's wrestling with his own death. He knows what's going to happen to him and he can pray to his father and say, please take this away from me and yet not my will, but your will be done. He, he has this concrete foundation, this trust in his father. He knows that his father will do what is best. His father will do what is good because his father is good. His enemies are greater than David's. His battles are harder than David's. But he has a greater confidence in the goodness and the wisdom of his father. He can leave things in his father's hands. He can pray that prayer. And it's not fake. He's not just saying, I know I ought to pray this, but I really don't feel. It's not a true prayer. I'm going to say the words because I know they're the right words to say. But Jesus feels it. He, He knows his father is good. Our struggles are far smaller, but they're no less real. There are times when we are tempted to doubt God's goodness. We we feel frustrated by circumstances. But we can look at David and we can look at the Lord Jesus. We can see that they, they trust God and they're right. God is good. He is the source of everything good. It's right for us to be grateful, even for small things, giving thanks before meals, praying whenever there's some small pleasure we're enjoying, up to the greatest things. God himself is reliable, constant. He gives us every good thing. Secondly, David says, God is the best God. He's the source of every good thing, and he's the best out of all the gods. It sounds like a strange thing to say in some ways. God, God is the only God. Of course he's the best God. You don't, it's not like you go into Tesco's and see the shelf with 20 different sorts of biscuit and you pick the biscuit that you think is, I feel like a jammy dodger today, I'll go for that one. There, there are no other gods. There's not 20 types of God and you pick the one you want to serve. There's only one true and living God, one God who's actually real and powerful But that doesn't stop people worshipping other gods, so-called. And David then takes a look at other gods, the other options, the other things people worship. And in verses 3 and 4, he he looks at the people who worship God and the people who rush off running after other gods. And he looks at their lives in verse 4 and he says, well, they're, they're not happy, are they? Their gods don't give them joy. Their sorrows shall be multiplied, the ones who hasten after another god. David knows people who actually worship idols, images of fish and birds and animals. Their idols don't have any power to bless. And more than that, their idols demand a high price from those who worship them. David says that I I won't be pouring out their drink offerings of blood. Sometimes, literally, the Canaanites would be cutting themselves because they thought their gods would be happy with their blood and their suffering. And David says, oh, that's just horrible. I I won't even mention their names on my lips. Those gods multiply sorrows for the people who worship them, and yet people hasten after them. People are running after them. We, We see it today, don't we? People run after things which will only make them miserable. People chase false gods. They, they run after money or status or love or popularity or success at school or at work. And it, those things are good things to have, some of them, most of them. It's not wrong to have the things. 
it's wrong to chase after them and pursue them and, and give yourself to them as though they were God. And yet people do. People think those things have the power to bless. They think those things will make them happy. What do you really want out of life? What, what are you hoping for? By the end of your days, what do you hope to have had? Comfort, pleasure, security, love. In the end, you can't have any of those things apart from God. And pursuing them apart from God will lead to sorrow and disappointment, misery. David says those gods multiply sorrows. In the end, they demand your blood and they give nothing back. Other gods are destructive. And looking through the bifocals, again, we see this mindset in the Lord Jesus. He knew that his God and Father was better than any rival. We, we see him in the wilderness, don't we? Satan's there whispering into his ears, offering him all the kingdoms of the world as a bribe. I will give you all of this. Just bow down and worship me. It's not wrong for Jesus to want what Satan's offering. He will rule all the kingdoms of the world, and that will be a good thing. But he knows that nothing that Satan can give him is going to make him happy. He can see through Satan's lies because his happiness is in his father. When, G when Satan says that to him, worship me, bow down to me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you everything you could ever want. What does Jesus say? It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus is committed to his God and Father. Nothing, nothing Satan can offer him, no bribe, no other pleasure could be enough to buy Jesus' worship. I think we, we need the same conviction that David had, that Jesus had. Satan tempts us with the things of this world, the things God has made. We need to see that they're bad masters, they're destructive gods. They would leave us, in fact, empty and unsatisfied. We find that hard to believe sometimes, but it is true. We need to know the goodness of God. David finishes that verse, doesn't he? Verse 4, verse 5, he goes into, My God is my portion. He's my inheritance. He's my cup. The God who is David's portion, who is David's God, is, is like a cup to savour. God is like a, a fine wine, something to, to taste, to enjoy. And David's doing that in the psalm. He's, he's enjoying God. He's meditating on God's character, on his deeds. And God is our portion. He is our cup. If we are the people of the Lord Jesus. And we, we need to appreciate that. We need to spend time meditating on God himself, drinking him in. We need to sing to ourselves, sing to each other about the goodness of God. He gives us himself and he is, he is the best. He is every pleasure rolled into one. So God is, God is a good God. God is the best God. And thirdly, God gives us particular gifts. He gives us special things, things that are just for us. David says to God in verse 5, you are the one who holds my lot, you maintain my lot. And in verse 6, he says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. He knows every good thing he enjoys comes from God. But more than that, every good thing he enjoys comes to him by the specific will and decision of God. 
You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. No, nothing is random. If you cast lots for something, if you roll the dice, if you toss a coin, God controls the lot. God chooses the numbers on the dice. God chooses heads or tails. And David specifically in these verses is thinking about the land given to him and his family. You read in the Old Testament about the division of the land, the land of Canaan. God gave the whole land to Israel. But more than just giving the land to the nation, he gave particular bits of land to particular tribes when the nation came into their inheritance. Beginning in the days of Joshua, God had already told Moses how the land would, was to be divided. God told Moses, you are to divide the land into 12 big areas, and each, 12, each of the 12 tribes will have its own part of the land. And then within the tribes, the land is to be divided up again, and each clan in the tribe is to have its smaller area of tribal land. And then within each clan, the land is to be divided again within families. The, God gives them the land, but the people don't just settle wherever they feel like living. Tribes and clans and families are to stick together. And God says the way in which this division is to be made is by lot. It's there in Numbers 25, isn't it? The tribes are not to argue among themselves about which of them should get the best bits. They're not to say, well, I want to be by the seaside and do the fishing. I want the mountains. I want the farmland. They're not, they are to roll dice or toss coins or take stones out of a bag, however it's done. And the result then will be in God's hand. And that command is obeyed. We see, we see it being worked out in scripture. Most of the second half of Joshua deals with which parts of the land are given to which tribes as their inheritance. And it all happens by lot. And that means every Israelite in the land can say to himself, this farm, this is my family farm. And it was given to me and to my family by God himself. This hill is my hill, and it's my hill by God's decision. It's, it's a gift to me from him. And David says, well, for me, the lines, the, the ropes, the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. The lines that mark off David's little bit from his neighbour. And he can delight in the particular things God has given to him, his own piece of the big inheritance. Maybe if you went to visit David's family farm, you wouldn't think oh, that, that hill is clearly superior to all the other hills over there. God has given David the best hill of all of the... You've... But David does think that way. You might think they all look alike. David thinks that one's special because it's mine, because God has given it to me. He wouldn't want to swap it with anybody else. He is very pleased with what God has given to him because he takes it as... a. As a gift, he takes it as showing, as God showing his love to him. He says, I, my inheritance is good. I enjoy it. And Jesus feels the same way as well. His great inheritance, I suppose, was his position, his people. He is the anointed king who can speak of his kingdom. He speaks of believers as those whom the Lord has given to him. His father has given them as a gift, as an inheritance. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
I, I will not despise any one of the people my father gives to me. I will take them all and be grateful for them all and protect them all. He says, my father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Nobody is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. He, he prays, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. The, the father gave his son a particular inheritance, a particular people. And Jesus says, well, I, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a good inheritance. I love this inheritance. I'm not going to lose one of those my father has given me. He, he values, he delights in the least of his people. We are precious in his eyes. He feels about us the way David felt about his inheritance. Uh, we, we can apply this to ourselves in two directions, can't we? We can say, this is huge security for us. We are the inheritance of the Lord. We have been given to him by his father. He will not let us be stolen. He values us. He will never sell us off or abandon us. We belong to him as, as his inheritance. It is... It gives us hope. It gives us confidence. And then we can apply it also to the inheritance we have. Each of us does have particular things God has given us, particular gifts, and we should value them. We should, we should use them as best we can. Count your blessings. Has God given you intelligence? Okay, good. Use it for his glory. Has he given you a family? care for them govern them well protect them has he given you money well well enjoy it and be grateful and use it for his honor god gives us so many good things and it we have a responsibility to value the inheritance he has given to us to use it well so god is the source of all good things god is the best god himself god gives us special gifts Fourthly, God gives advice. He gives counsel, which David meditates on in verses 7 and 8. He says, I, I bless the Lord who has given me counsel. In the night, my heart instructs me. And he says, I, I've set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. There, there are times in David's life when he really doesn't know what to do. He, he just feels out of his depth he has to make decisions he's the king and he doesn't know what's right it, it must have happened every day because he's making so many decisions every day people come to jerusalem to david to seek justice they've had a law case in their village the village elders have given their decision they're not happy with that decision they can appeal to a higher authority they can go to jerusalem they can see the king and lay their case before him and King David, or a man appointed by David, will give them a higher form of justice. And David needs wisdom every day to make those decisions. He's making decisions on behalf of the whole nation sometimes. Should, should I seek an alliance with Hiram of, Hiram of Tyre? Or should I keep him at arm's length? Can I trust that man or not? And David can say, well, God gives me counsel. God speaks to me. When David is faced with a hard problem, he doesn't know who's right and who's wrong, he can hear from God. He can go to the words of the law. He will find there God's own solution very often. He says, as I, as I lay awake at night, my heart instructs me in the night seasons. He, as he's sleepless, thinking over some weighty decision in the middle of the night, 
he finds God has given him the ability to make the right decision, to deal rightly with his people, to see the way forward, to making the right call. And he says, my heart instructs me, which is, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we would think, well, that's a bit subjective, isn't it? How, you know, how do you know your heart's not lying to you, David? And David says, well, no, my, my wisdom can arise out of my own heart because God has given me a heart that loves the law and that loves God. It's because I have set God always before me because my decisions are made in the light of God's wisdom and God's commands. That's why I'm not shaken. You can see it worked out in David's life, even from an early age, can't you, that sort of thing? Think back to when Israel is at war with the Philistines and they, they face a problem they can't handle. They don't know how to handle it. They're, they're there, the Israelite army on one hill, the Philistine army on the other hill opposite them, and every day twice a day for 40 days down into the valley comes this giant of a man like nine foot tall spear like a weaver's beam he's 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 a one-man weapon of mass destruction he's a one-man army and he comes out into the valley every day and shouts a challenge to the to the troops of israel send me your best man come and have a go you think you're hard enough i will i will tear him to pieces and everybody in Israel is hiding in their tents. They're, this is suicide. We can't fight this man. He's huge. It's, it would be like a baby fighting a bear. None of them want to die. David isn't even in the army at that point. He's not old enough. He's still a boy. He's there delivering some food for his brothers. But he hears Goliath give this sort of challenge. And when he hears the challenge... He thinks differently from everybody else in the Israelite camp. Everybody else is terrified. David's immediate thought, and we can read it in Samuel, he thinks, who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he dares to defy the armies of the living God? Even from his youth, God is the great factor in all of David's decision-making, in the way he thinks. David goes out to fight Goliath. That's not because he's confident in his own strength. It's not because he thinks, oh, yeah, I can take him. God is such a present reality to David that it genuinely seems strange to him that Goliath should dare to speak like that to the Israelite army. Everybody else is afraid. David, God is at his right hand. And that affects everything about his mindset. God is his counsellor. And again, we, we look through the bifocals. We see Jesus not being shaken because he constantly leans on his father's counsel. We see him chewing over the words of scripture, having them to hand in crisis when he needs them. God's promises, God's commandments shape his whole mindset, even when everybody else is thinking differently. We, we see him going deliberately, consciously, towards suffering, towards death. He tells the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem so that I can be killed there and then rise from the dead. And his own closest friends think he's crazy. They think that's a mad idea. Peter takes him aside, tries to rebuke him. But Jesus knows he's following the path laid out for him by his father. He knows his father as his advisor. He knows the right thing to do, even when nobody else does. His confidence is in his father. And so it should be. For, for believers, we have the spirit of Jesus dwelling within us, giving us hope and trust in God. 
We need to learn not to look at external things, not to look at our circumstances and to give up hope and lose heart. We need to look at God himself and make our decisions based on his promises, his laws, his standards. We need to set the whole course of our lives by his word. He gives us the counsel we need. Finally, then, fifthly and finally, God gives us all of these things, not just in this world, but forever. God gives us good things to enjoy, every good thing. He gives us himself. He gives us particular gifts. He gives us counsel. And these things last for eternity. David can say, I'm grateful for the things God has given me in this world, but he knows this world won't last. He finishes his psalm saying, what really makes me glad in the end is that I know this God will be my God forever. There are pleasures at his right hand forevermore. He will not abandon me to Sheol. God will not leave me in the place of the dead far from him. God is eternal. And because he is faithful, he will never abandon his servants. There must be life after death. There must be a resurrection. That David is glad now to have God as his God. He feels it's a delight to, to experience God's smile, to enjoy the gifts God's giving him. But David has a hope beyond this world. His suffering in this world might be very great, but he knows this world does not end with the grave. The path God has made known to him leads to life, to the presence of God forever, to fullness of joy lasting forever at God's right hand. David is looking forward to a day when everything he loves about the things God has given him here will, will be magnified a thousand times. Every joy he knows on earth is just a shadow of the joys he will have in the new heavens and the new earth. And he sings about that at the end of the psalm. And again, we, we see the Lord Jesus. We know that this was his experience. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, says the writer to the Hebrews. He, he sets his heart on eternal joys. There is the joy of being with God forever, the joy of perfect holiness, the fellowship that there is between Father and Son and his people, the joy of shaping his people to be more and more like him. Peter and Paul in the New Testament quote this psalm, and it's the end of the psalm that they quote, and they're both saying, well, th this is about Jesus. Literally, this is true of Jesus in a way it never was true of David himself. David is right to put his hope in God for all eternity. Jesus already has the reality of what David is looking forward to. He has been raised from the dead. Peter and Paul are saying, well, David actually, his flesh saw corruption. We know that. He's not wrong to have the hope he expresses, but he died and he rotted the last David, the last king of his line, he died and God raised him from the dead. Three days later, he did not allow his Holy One to see corruption. And he is raised as the first fruits of the dead, says Paul to the Corinthians. He is part of a much larger harvest. We can see David, we can see Jesus, we can see ourselves. We will join him if we are his people. Even in a fallen world, even in a world like ours, the Christian life is happy. It's happier than any alternative. God is our God and he is good. We delight in him. But beyond this world, there are better things than we have ever known here. God is good. 
He's good to his king. He's good to us because we belong to the king. Through Jesus Christ, we know the goodness of God for ourselves. I suppose I would ask a question to you, I think, if you have never given your love, your loyalty to the Lord Jesus. What is it that stops you? What is it that you want? In, in the end, God is the only good thing there is. Everything else will turn bitter in your mouth. None of it will satisfy you. God's goodness is forever. Come to him, have him as your God through the Lord Jesus. If, if you are a believer, you know these things already, but it's good still to think about them, to, to think again on what the Lord has done for us, all he's given to us, and the hope we have for eternity. May God give us the joy that comes from having him as our God. May God bless us. Shall we pray? Great God, we thank you for every good thing that you give to us. We know that every pleasure we have, every fine and wholesome thing we enjoy, comes to us from you, that you are the source of all of these things, that you, you shower them upon us because of your goodness, because you are good, that is your nature. Father, we thank you for the confidence that we can have as believers that you are good to us. We we can see that you have not withheld from us your only son. You have given him to us, and surely with him you will give us every good thing. Father, we ask that you would help us as we walk through a world that is fallen, a world with so many pains and sorrows. We ask that you would give us the spirit of the Lord Jesus, that we would have something of his faithfulness, his constancy, his confidence in you his trust in you that we would walk through this world setting you before us always that your your promises your law your son would be our guiding light would be what forms our mindsets and our decision making we pray that we would be grateful to you in every circumstance and father we thank you for the confidence that your children can have that this world is not all there is. We pray that you would keep us looking to a better world, to a heavenly city where our inheritance lies, where we will be forever with the Lord. Amen.